Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we sing Psalm 22 in Psalm 6, we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world today and in the past who have suffered greatly because of their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And these songs and this reality help us to come face to face with this very important question. Brothers and sisters, what are you willing to die for? And I'm not asking that hypothetically. I'm asking you, what are you actually ready to die for? Would you be willing to die for your family members, for your children, for your brothers and sisters? Would you be willing to die for a friend? Would you be willing if the government called you up to die for your country? Would you be willing to die for your faith? In John's vision in Revelations chapter six, he sees the souls of the martyrs, men and women who were willing to die for their faith and who were killed for their belief in the word of God. Would you be willing to join them? Brothers and sisters, this afternoon I would like to speak to you about one of those martyrs that as we speak now is in heaven. One particular man who today is in the presence of the Lord, clothed in the white robes of God under the altar, waiting until the number of the martyrs is complete. A man who is killed for his faith, a reformed martyr, important in the history and the identity of our own church. His name is Guido de Bre. Guido de Bre was murdered in 1567 slain for the word of God, murdered for the reformed faith, as it is summarized in the Belgic Confession, the confession which he himself wrote, the confession that has been passed down through history and forms one of the doctrinal standards of this church. What are you willing to die for? What I would like to impress upon you this afternoon is this, the Christian faith, as it is summarized in the Belgic Confession, is something worth dying for. And perhaps one day, the Lord forbid, you may be called to die for the faith expressed in this confession. The Heidelberg Catechism, of course, is our most popular doctrinal standard because we use it to teach our children and we traditionally preach it every Sunday afternoon. And then we have the Canons of Dort, which are also very popular because they summarize the very famous five points of Calvinism. But the Belgian Confession tends to sort of fly under the radar. One author puts it like this. The Belgian Confession has been far less important to us than we've been willing to admit. Guido de Bre waits in heaven as a martyr for the faith, someone who is willing to die for what was written in the Belgian Confession and somehow along the line in our churches, we kind of tend to neglect this confession. And neglecting the Belgian confession as a doctrinal standard brings with it great risks, particularly in two areas. History shows us that when theological controversy comes to confessionally reformed churches, it's often controversy related to the theology of the Belgic confession the standard that we spend the, less, the least amount of time with. 
So there's doctrinal risk in neglecting the Belgian Confession. Another risk is this, and this risk I seem to see at play in Canadian Reformed churches. Neglect of the Belgian Confession brings with it a failure to understand the missionary heritage of the Reformed faith. J. Van Bruggen, in his book on the Belgian Confession, called The Church Says Amen, states that when it comes to the purpose of our confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism preserves the truth for future generations. The Canons of Dort upholds the truth against error, and the purpose of the Belgian Confession is to give public testimony of the truth. The Belgian Confession has a missionary character to it, so much so that Pastor Wes Bradenhoff has written a doctrinal thesis on the missionary significance of the Belgian Confession. Neglect, neglect of this confession, written by a missionary martyr for the faith, risks doctrinal error and missionary weakness. And so it's my intention for the next couple of months to take a break from our Sunday afternoon teaching on the Heidelberg Catechism, which our church in the history of its church has probably gone through about 40 times, and to teach the Belgic Confession. So let's read together the introduction to the Belgic Confession. You can find that on page 499. Page 499, we're gonna read the introduction together. <clears throat> The Belgian Confession, the first of our, the doctrinal standards of the Canadian Reformed Churches, is the true Christian confession. It's usually called the Belgian Confession because it originated in the southern Netherlands, now known as Belgium. Its chief author was Guido de Bre, a preacher of the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands, who died a martyr to the faith in the year 1567. During the 16th century, the churches in this country were exposed to the most terrible persecution by the Roman Catholic government. To protest against this cruel oppression and to prove to the persecutors uh, that the adher adherents of the Reformed faith were no rebels, as was laid to their charge, but law-abiding citizens who professed the true Christian doctrine according to the Holy Scriptures, Debre prepared this confession in the year 1561. A copy was sent to King Philip II, together with an address in which the petitioners declared that they were ready to obey the government in all lawful things, but that they would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to fire, rather than deny the truth expressed in this confession. Although the immediate purpose of securing freedom from the persecution was not attained, and Abraham himself fell as one of the many thousands who sealed their faith with their lives, his work has endured and will continue to endure for ages. In its composition, the author availed himself to some extent of the Confession of the Reformed Churches in France, written briefly by John Calvin and published two years earlier. The work of Debre, however, is not a mere revision of Calvin's work, but an independent composition. In the Netherlands, it was one, at once gladly received by the churches, adopted by the national synods held during the last three decades of the 16th century. After a careful revision, not of the contents, but of the text, the great Synod of Dort in 1618-19 adopted this confession as one of the doctrinal standards of the Reformed churches to which all office bearers of the churches were required to subscribe. Its excellence as one of the best statements of Reformed doctrine has been generally recognized. I'd like to tell you this story of Guido de Bre and the origins of the Belgian confession in a little bit of a different way. The story starts in the 1500s, in the time of the great Protestant Reformation, and it takes place in what was then called the Lowlands, 
or the Netherlands, not to be confused with the modern day country of the Netherlands. At that time, the Lowlands were a collection of 17 provinces that were affiliated together and included the country of the Netherlands today and Belgium, Luxembourg, and parts of northern France. And the 17 provinces collectively had individual local governments, but ultimately they were ruled over by the Spanish king and Holy Roman Empire, Charles V. But Charles V had a problem. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was taking root in the lowlands in, his, in which he ruled. And as a Roman Catholic king and emperor, he saw this as a theological challenge and as a political threat to his own power. So Charles V goes out to purge the lowlands of Protestant Christians through persecution. If you lived in the lowlands under the reign of Charles V, you could be put to death if you discussed the Reformed faith or if you failed to report somebody else who had discussed the Reformed faith. If you were Protestant, you could have your property confiscated, you could be killed, and anyone who dared to help you or house you could also be executed. From 1523 to 1555, Charles V burned 2,000 Protestants, and he even killed Roman Catholic monks who seemed to have a Reformed leaning. So if you were to look at our book, at praise, book of praise at hymn three, hymn three is a rhymed version of a very ancient confession called the Te Deum. Charles V put together Augustinian monks who dared to repeat the Apostles' Creed and the Te Deum in public. So what, brothers and sisters, would you be willing to die for? And it was this, in this place, the lowlands, and at this time that Guido de Bray was born in 1522. And he grows up in a French-speaking Roman Catholic family, and he becomes a stained glass artist. He would have been the guy that makes these stained glass windows. That was his job. At around the age of 18, the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, regenerates Guido de Bray through the preaching of the word so that he puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he is converted as a Christian, a Protestant, someone to the Reformed faith. And then just a few years later, the missionaries that I spoke to that sang Psalm 6 as they were being burned to death, they came to the area where Guido lived, they were caught and executed, and the authorities knew that therefore there must be a Reformed church in the area, and so persecution came heavily to the area where Guido de Bray lived. So much so that the church in that area, the French-speaking church in the lowlands, began to be known as the church under the cross, the church under persecution, the church under suffering. People were burned at the stake. Spanish soldiers were rounding up reformed believers. So what does Guido de Bray do? He flees, and he leaves the lowlands, and he makes his way and crosses the English Channel, and he makes his way to England. And there in England, the Protestants are free to serve God as they desire. And so he attends a French reformed church that was planted by Calvin's missionaries from Geneva, and he spends about four or five years there being trained by these pastors to be a missionary to go back to the lowlands where there is persecution. And that's what he eventually does. About four years later, he leaves England, he goes back to the lowlands, knowing there's persecution there, knowing there's danger there, he assumes a false name, he disguises himself, and he becomes not an undercover spy, but an undercover preacher. Guido de Bray was an undercover preacher. In 1555, the Emperor King Charles V, he dies. 
and his son Philip, who is mentioned in the introduction to the Belgian Confession in our Book of Praise, becomes the king of Spain and therefore the ruler of the lowlands, and Philip turns out to be even more a savage persecutor of Protestants than his father was. So let me read just a little bit from this commentary on the Belgian Confession. Philip's religious zeal was even more fervent than his father's as he not only continued but increased the Spanish Inquisition but also persecuted the evangelicals militarily and the reformed believers at this time were called evangelicals. Philip's persecution came to the most fearful implementation in the person of the Duke of Alva who estimates say was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 lowlanders. This is why it has been said that there were more martyred for their faith in the Netherlands than in this period of history, than in the first 300 years of the ancient church in the Roman Empire. The, Roman, the number of Protestants who were executed by the Spaniards in a single province and a single reign far exceed that of the primitive martyrs in the space of three centuries and of the Roman Empire. The, the barbities, the barbaric acts committed among the sack and ruin of those blazing and starving cities are almost beyond belief. Unborn children were torn from the living bodies of their mothers. Women and children were violated by the thousands and whole populations burned and hacked to pieces by soldiers in every mode which, uh, mode which cruelty and its wanton ingenuity could devise. And then he says this, despite this gruesome persecution, which was increasingly focused on those of the reformed churches in the Netherlands, the reformed faith increased in greater proportion than the persecution. The Bible with the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism was the spiritual guide and comforter of the Protestants and fortified them against the assaults of the enemy. Calvinism, which fears God and nobody else, inspired that heroic courage which triumphed over the political and religious despotism of Spain. This, brothers and sisters, is our reformed heritage. We trace our reformed roots as a church down to the most bloody persecution of Christian believers in all of history. And to men like Guido de Bre, who is willing to leave the safety of Egypt, as the safety of England, pardon, and walk straight into the storm, comforted by the comforts of the truth of Christ to spread the gospel of Jesus. So under King Philip, the persecution is horrific, so bad that at a certain point, Guido de Bray wants to save at least some of the members of his small congregation and he takes them and he smuggles them into Germany where they can be safe. And then he continues on from Germany and he goes to Switzerland to study further under John Calvin. The Canadian Reformed theologian Yella Faber writes that Guido de Bray regarded John Calvin as his spiritual father. And as already mentioned, John Calvin's missionary school in Geneva was responsible for so much of the spread of the gospel in Europe at the time. So Guido goes to Geneva and he studies at the school with John Calvin with the hope still of returning to his homeland so he could be better prepared to serve the persecuted church. In 1559, at the age of 37 years old, Guido meets and he marries a godly and incredibly courageous woman named Catherine Ramon. 
And Catherine knows exactly what she's getting into, a life of uncertainty and the very, possibility, very real possibility of persecution and death. And so together, this newlywed young couple return to the lowlands, knowing that they might be killed, but they're passionate. They go because they're passionate for the spread of the gospel. What are you passionate about, brothers and sisters? And what are you willing to die for? Guido and Catherine, they, they go into what is now modern-day Belgium to the city of Tournai, where Guido begins to work as an undercover secret missionary. This is how he would do that. You weren't allowed to have open worship services, so Guido would attend dinner parties. He would have dinner parties and go to other people's dinner parties where six to ten people would get together around the table just as friends, and where Guido de Bray would be there to preach and to teach the Bible, to teach the Reformed faith. And he does that, and from 1559 to, 15, to 1561, he also spends his time gathering together various Reformed confessions, and then writing his own, the true Christian confession, or what we know as the Belgian confession, and he writes that to explain to others what true faith really looks like. And the Lord starts blessing his work. He's having these dinner parties and he's this undercover secret missionary and the Lord's blessing his work in the city of Tournai and by God's grace, even though Protestantism is totally illegal and even though they can't hold a public worship service, about half of the population is converted and becomes reformed. And so what happens then is because so many people become reformed, a bunch of them start feeling kind of bold and they start feeling, well, cotton picking, we should just go public. We just need to get out there. And Guido de Bray, he's against this. He says, no, we can't just go out there. We're not going to risk persecution. Let's just keep it you know, sort of closed at the moment. But they don't listen to him. A group of them decide that they're going to go public. So what do they do? They want to go on a big evangelism crusade. So what do they do? They go out into the streets. And what do you think they use for evangelism? They sing psalms from the Genevan Psalter. And they hand out copies of the Belgian Confession. How's that for a missionary strategy? Go out into the streets, sing psalms, and hand out copies of the Belgian Confession. That's how they decide to evangelize their Roman Catholic neighbors. So when you hold your book of praise in your hand with the Genevan Psalms and the Belgian Confession, you are holding for what believers in the lowlands in the 1500s understood as a missionary book to, for use for the evangelism of their neighbors. But of course, this public showing brings on repercussions and troops are called in and they put down the revolt because they see it as a theological but also a political revolt and the people are stopped and they have to go back into hiding. And here's where we come to a point where I believe that we need some historical clarity that is important for us today. In the introduction to the Belgian Confession that we read in our books of praise, it says in there that the immediate purpose of the Belgian Confession was to protest against the cruel oppression of King Philip and that Guido de Bray wrote the Belgian Confession to prove that Reformed believers were not rebels and to secure freedom from persecution, but that is simply not historically accurate. That's not historically accurate what we have written here. Daniel Hyde, an, OC, uh, an Orthodox Presbyterian uh, church pastor, has written this commentary on the Belgian Confession where he demonstrates that the immediate purpose of the Belgian Confession was not to write it for King Philip. The immediate purpose of this confession was the expansion of the church, not as a document to the king. So here's the timeline that explains that. Guido de Bray writes the Belgian Confession between 1559 and 1561. In September, 
1561, there are so many copies of this confession that when the people step out boldly in the city of Tournai, they're handing out copies of the Belgian confession to all of their unbelieving neighbors in order to evangelize them. That was in September. In October, the soldiers come and they put an end to this and they round up people and they find a whole bunch of copies of the Belgian Confession. And they find copies of the Belgian Confession with Guido de Bres' name written on it as the author. And so immediately he becomes a wanted man. They know who he is and they know that he wrote this confession. And then, it's only then in the following month, in November, that in an attempt to stop the persecution that's happening, someone gift wraps the confession and throws it over the wall into the castle of Tournai with a letter from Guido de Bre to King Philip explaining that unlike the Remonstrants or the Anabaptist rebels, the Reformed people in the lowlands are, are loyal citizens and they shouldn't be persecuted. So the Belgian Confession is used to try to stop persecution, but that's not what its immediate purpose was. That's not originally why it was written. It was written for this purpose, the missionary expansion and the strengthening of the Reformed Church. That's what it should say in the introduction in the Book of Praise. Three days after that confession was thrown over the wall and delivered to the castle, the letter probably never got to King Philip, but three days later, there is a royal decree that's put out that anybody who is found with a copy of the Belgian Confession will be arrested and put to death. You all have a copy. If you were living back then, you could be arrested and put to death just for possessing a copy of the Belgic Confession. In that letter to King Philip, de Bray stated that reformed believers were ready to offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to fire, then deny the truth expressed in the Belgic Confession. And they weren't using f fancy imagery there, they were just referring to common torture techniques of the day. And in response, the government of Pif King Philip brings his whips and his knives and his gags and his fire upon the church. But they don't capture Guido de Bray. Not yet. They do find his home. In, as they search the city of Tournai, they find Guido de Bray's home, and in it, they discover 200 copies of the Belgian Confession, obviously intended for distribution as well as a whole bunch of books by Luther and by Calvin and others. So they find his house, but Guido escapes. And the government, they want him so badly and they hate him so much that they burn a life-size effigy of him in the market square to tell everybody that Guido de Bray is public enemy number one. And then we ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, what would we be willing to die for? And so Guido, he goes on the run again. And for the next five years, he gets out those disguises and he goes under false names and he travels as an undercover missionary and he sneaks in and out of the lowlands and attends meetings and sneaks in and out of cities and he goes to those dinner parties and he strengthens the Reformed Church and he evangelizes those who are not yet converted. He's clever, he goes by the name of Jerome, which was the name of one of his brothers who was a Roman Catholic. And after five years, him and his wife decide that it's time to settle down again. And they settle down in the city of Valenciennes, which is near the northern border of France. And there's something beautiful that happens in this city in 1566 to 67. There was a brief period where the local nobles supported the reformed believers so much that they allowed the believers to hold some public meetings and they weren't getting persecuted for it. 
The nobles, of course, they wanted to have independence from Spain. And the Protestants wanted to have independence from the papacy. So the nobles thought, well, we could work together and then maybe we can get both what we want. So for about one year, Guido de Bray lives in the city of Valenciennes and he's allowed to work publicly. He doesn't have to hide anymore and they're allowed to have meetings. And so people just start coming out in swarms to hear Guido de Bray preach. Crowds as big as 25,000 people gather in farmers' fields to hear Guido de Bray and others preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they're extremely exciting times, although they were still a little bit dangerous. We have documents that tell us that people were afraid that the Roman Catholic uh, emperor and his Spanish armies could arrive and violently oppress them at any time. So we have stories about how people would come into these evening meetings and they would stand in the open fields listening to the preaching of the word, holding their pitchforks and their other farming utensils in case the armies came that they could protect themselves. And the nobles would come and sit on their horses with their weapons, their spears, and their swords in case they got attacked while they were in church. Brothers and sisters, would you do that? Would you risk your life to hear the preaching of the gospel? What are you willing to die for? But this year it goes by quickly and then things kind of get out of hand. Against, again, against Guido's wishes, a mob of Protestants goes on a three-day idol-smashing riot in the city of Antwerp. They enter into Catholic churches and they tear down the statues and they break them into pieces and they rip up the priest's clothing and they destroy the, ma- the elements of the mass and they, they go on a three-day havoc, you know, uh, wrecking riot in Antwerp destroying all things Roman Catholic and King Philip, the Spanish emperor and king, hears about it and he sends his armies to lay siege to the city of Antwerp. And Guido de Bray by this time he sent his family and his children to live with extended family in France so they're safe but when the soldiers surround the city of Antwerp, Guido de Bray is trapped inside. The siege lasts for three months. And then on Palm Sunday in 1567, the armies attack. And Guido de Bray, he's in church and he's preaching his sermon when the cannonballs hit the walls and the screaming starts. And someone in the church makes the steeple bell ring and they play the words, uh, they, they play the tune, the Genevan tune of Psalm 22 on the cheap steeple bells as the armies attack. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I to you, O God, for refuge flee, why do you grant no help and fail to see my tribulation? I groan by day, but you are far from heeding the mournful cries that I have been repeating. By night also you do not hear my pleading. I find no rest. And the armies break through and they savagely rain death on the Protestants, the inhabitants of the city. And as the dust settles, Guido de Bray has not been found. And the soldiers, they search everywhere in the city. They search for a whole week and they can't find him even though he's hiding there. And he's hiding and then on Good Friday, some of the believers, like some believers did to the Apostle Paul so long ago, let him down over the city wall at night and he escapes. And he escapes with a group of people and as he flees the city, as they yeah, carry on, they get to another town and they have to take a stop at a, at a hostel, at a, at a hotel. 
and somebody sees and recognizes one of them and calls the authorities and they're arrested, betrayed, chained and brought to an obscure prison called Brunen, a foul place so dark and dirty it goes by the common name of the black hole. And Guido de Brea is chained in a cell whose only light comes through a small hole where the feces and the urine of other prisoners comes through. And the heavy chains on his hand and on his feet cut and bruise his flesh to the bone and he's only taken out of his dark cell for questioning and for torture. And he's kept alive for seven weeks. But he never leaves. Brothers and sisters, what are you willing to die for? In the seven weeks before his execution, he's miraculously allowed to write letters to people on the outside, and we have copies of them. So I'd like to take a moment now, and I'd like to read you the letter that he wrote his wife, Catherine Ramon, whom he had sent away to safety. So imagine receiving a letter from your spouse who you know is about to be executed for the faith. And imagine writing a letter to your spouse, knowing that these will be the last words she ever hears from you. So I'd like to read this letter, and I'd like you to take note as I read it. The confidence in God and the providence of God that Guido de Bra has. The Christian love that he expresses for his wife. The strength of his faith under trial. If any of us should ever be in prison for our faith and face the executioner's gun, may God grant us the grace to write a letter like this one. The grace and mercy of our good God and heavenly Father and the love of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, be with you, my dearly beloved. Catherine Ramon, my dear and beloved wife and sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, your anguish and sadness disturb somewhat my joy and the happiness of my heart. So I'm writing this for the consolation of us both, but especially for your consolation since you've always loved me with an ardent affection because it pleases the Lord to separate us from each other. I feel your sorrow over this separation more keenly than mine, and I pray you not to be troubled too much over this for fear of offending God. You knew when you married me that you were taking a mortal husband uncertain of life, and yet it has pleased God to permit us to live together for seven years, giving us five children. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he would have provided the way, but it did not please him to do this, and may his will be done. Now remember, I did not fall into the hands of my enemies by mere chance, but through the providence of my God who controls and governs all things, the least as well as the greatest. This is shown by the words of Christ. Do not be afraid, your very hairs are numbered. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and, are not, one of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground without the will of your father? then fear nothing. You are more excellent than many sparrows. These words of divine wisdom say that, says that God knows the number of my hairs and how then can harm come to me without the command and the providence of God? It couldn't happen unless one should say God is no longer God. This is why the prophet says there is no affliction in the city that the Lord has not willed. Many saintly persons, dear wife, who were before us consoled themselves in their afflictions and tribulations with this doctrine Joseph, having been sold by his brothers and taken into Egypt, said, you did a wicked deed, but God turned it to your good. God sent me to Egypt for your profit. And David said the same, and so in the case of Job and many others. 
And that's why the evangelist writes so carefully about the sufferings and the death of Jesus Christ, saying, and it was done that which was written of him, that, that, that which was written of him may be accomplished. And the said should be same of all members, or said for all members of Christ. It's very true that human reason rebels against this doctrine and resists it as much as possible, and I have very strongly experienced this myself. When I was arrested, I would say to myself, so many of us should not have traveled together and we were betrayed by this one or that. We, we ought not to be, have been arrested. And with such thoughts, I became overwhelmed till my spirits were raised by meditation on the providence of God. And then my heart began to feel a great repose, and I began to say, my God, you have caused me to be born at a time you have ordained during all the time of my life. You kept me and preserved me from great dangers, and you've delivered me from them all. And if at my present hour, has, if my present hour has come in, in which I will pass from this life to you, may your will be done. I cannot escape from your hands, and if I could, I would not, since it is happiness for me to be conformed to your will, And these thoughts made my heart cheerful again. And I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to join me in thanking God for what he has done. For he does nothing that is not just and very equitable, and you should believe that it is for my good and for my peace. You've seen and felt my labors, cross persecutions and afflictions which I've endured and even had a part in them when you have accompanied me in my travels. But now my God has extended his hand to receive me into his blessed kingdom and I shall see it before you when it, uh, and I shall see it before you and when it shall please the Lord, you will follow me. This separation is not for all time. The Lord will receive you also and join us together in our head, Jesus Christ. Dear wife, this is not the place of our habitation. That's heaven. This is only the place of our journey. That's why we long for our true country, which is heaven. We desire to be received in the home of our heavenly father, to see our brother head, Savior Jesus Christ, to see the noble company of the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles and many thousands of martyrs into whose company I hope to be received when I finish the course of my work in which I received from my Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you, my dearly beloved, console yourself with meditation on these things. Consider the honor that God has done to you in giving you a husband who is not only a minister of the Son of God, but so esteemed of God that he allowed him to have the crown of martyrs. It's an honor the like of which God has never even given to angels. I am happy My heart is light, it lacks nothing in my afflictions. I'm so filled with the abundance of the riches of my God that I have enough for me and for all those to whom I can speak. So I pray my God that he will continue his kindness to me, his prisoner. The one in whom I've trusted will do it for I found my my experience that he'll never leave those who trusted in him and I would have never thought that God could be so kind to such a poor creature as I. I feel the faithfulness of my Lord Jesus Christ and I'm practicing now what I've preached to others and I must confess that when I preached I would speak about things that I'm actually experiencing as a blind man speaks of color. But since I've t- been taken prisoner, I've profited more and more and learned more during the rest, uh, now than in the rest of my whole life. I'm in a very good school here. The Holy Spirit inspires me to continue and continually teaches me how to use the weapons of this combat. 
And on the other side is Satan, the adversary of all the children of God. He's like a boisterous roaring lion and he constantly surrounds me and seeks to wound me. But he who has said fear not for I has overcome the world makes me victorious here. And already I see that the Lord puts Satan under my feet and I feel the power of God perfected in my weakness. And the Lord permits me on the other hand to feel my weakness and my smallness that I am but a small vessel on earth, very fragile, to the end that he would humble me, so that all the glory of the victory may be given to him. On the other hand, he consoles me and fortifies me in unbelieving ways, unbelievable ways. I've more comfort here than the enemies of the gospel. I eat and drink and rest better than they do. I'm held in a very strong prison, very bleak, obscure, and dark. The, the prison is known by the name Brunen. The air is poor and it stinks, and on my feet and on my hands I have heavy irons, big and heavy, and they're, con- they're a continual hell, hollowing out my limbs up to my poor bones. And the chief constable comes to look at my irons two or three times a day, fearing that I'll escape. And there are three guards of 40 men before the door of the prison. And I also have visits from Monsieur Lamade, who comes to see me to console me and exhort me to patience, he says. And he comes after his dinner when he's got wine in the head and he's got a full stomach and you can imagine what his consolations are. And he threatens me. But for all of that, my God does not take away his promises, consoling my heart and giving me, dear wife, much contentment. Such things have happened, my dear sister and faithful wife. I implore you to find comfort from the Lord in your afflictions and to place your troubles with him. He is the husband of believing widows and the father of poor orphans. He will never leave you. Of that I can assure you. Conduct yourself as a Christian woman, faithful in the fear of God, as you always have been, honoring by your good life and conversation the doctrine of the Son of God, which your husband has preached. As you have always loved me with great affection, I pray that you would continue this love toward our little children, instructing them in the knowledge of the true God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. Be their father now and their mother. And take care that they use honestly the little that God has given you. If God does you the favor to permit you to live in widowhood with our children after my death, that will be well. But if you cannot and the means are lacking, then go to some good man, faithful and God-fearing. And when I can, I shall write to our friends to watch over you. I think they will not let you want for anything. Take up your regular routine after the Lord has taken me. You have our daughter Sarah, who will soon be grown. She will be your companion and help you in your troubles. She will console you in your tribulations and the Lord will always be with you. Greet our good friends in my name and let them pray to God for me that he might give me strength, speech, and wisdom and ability to uphold the truth of the Son of God to the end and to the last breath of my life. Farewell, Catherine, my dearly beloved. I pray, my God, that he will comfort you and give you contentment in his good will. I hope that God has given me the grace to write for your benefit in such a way that you might be consoled in this poor world. Keep my letter for remembrance of me. It's badly written, but it's what I can do and not what I wish. Commend me to my good mother, and I hope to write to her too if it pleases God, and my good sister too. 
May she take her affliction to God. Grace be with you. At the prison, April 12th, 1567, your faithful husband, Guy de Bray, minister of the word of God at Valenciennes and presently prisoner for the Son of God at the aforesaid place. The end. Let me finish with this, brothers and sisters. It was the day before Pentecost, May 31st, 1567, when the army captain awakened Debre at three in the morning to tell him that he would be executed three hours later. There were other preachers with him. Two of them were to be hanged. Others were to be beheaded. Debray was allowed to say farewell to the other prisoners, and he did this with a quiet joy. Brothers, he told them this morning, I've been condemned to death for the doctrine of the Son of God. Praise be to him, I am happy. I never dared to think that God would do me such an honor. At six o'clock on that Saturday morning, the preachers were brought to the Valsens City Hall to hear their sentence read, and a crowd had gathered around the new scaffold erected in the market square. One, of the, uh, one other pastor was executed first, and when Debray's turn came, he stopped at the foot of the ladder to pray, but he was not allowed to finish. Standing on the ladder with a noose around his neck, he spoke to the crowd around the scaffold. Even here, he did not speak against the government, but reminded the people to respect the magistrates. Eloquently, he pleaded with them to be faithful to the word of God, which he had pre purely preached to them. And while Debray still spoke the word of God, the hangman received his signal and threw his victim from the ladder. From morning until late afternoon, the bodies of the preachers hung limp in their nooses in the market square and silence hung over the city where they had led so many into the true faith. And before evening, the bodies were buried in shallow graves in a field. Only three months after Debrez's death, there came to his country more of the bloody terrors and massacres of the Duke of Alva, who made all previous persecutions seem mild compared to his. And Alva ground out beneath his heel the churches that Debray had served so faithfully. And the Belgian people did not rise like their Dutch neighbors to shake off the yoke of tyranny and Catholicism. But the great heretic preacher, Guido Debray, who died gladly for the faith, of his, uh, faith which his country could never embrace, has left a treasure for the whole world to share. Through his masterful confession of faith, Guido de Bray has spoken to the church of many centuries and in many lands. And we who read the story of his life and death are inspired anew to live by the faith set forth in the treasure he has left us. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, may we stand firm in the theological tradition that we claim as our own. Let us stand with Guido de Bray, the missionary who was slain before the word of God and the witness he bore. Today as a martyr dressed in white under the altar of God. Let us not risk doctrinal error and let's not risk missional weakness. Let's not neglect the word of God and let us be willing to die for the faith passed down to us as it is summarized in this, the Belgic Confession. Let's pray.
Lord, Father in heaven. As Guido de Bray and the martyrs in heaven rest upon the rest until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, those who are to be killed as they themselves as being, hear our prayer, Lord. May us, your church here in Ottawa, be found ready and willing to lay down our lives for the cause of the gospel to the end that all men and women of this world might bend the knee before Jesus and serve you, the one true God. And we pray now, Lord, that you would bless this sermon series on the Belgian Confession. And may we as a church grow deeper in our knowledge and experience of you, for your glory, for the purity, perseverance, and missionary growth of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen.